Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Back Today on the program, we will revisit the bill that would have allowed guns on college campuses. Permit carriers are, are actually the, a more trusted segment of society than even law enforcement. Wyoming kids are using the state's newly adopted science standards for the first time this year. We'll look back at what it took to reach agreement on teaching climate change. There's certain words that get people fired up, and we tried to avoid the words that could be controversial. We'll hear what ranchers and labor advocates are saying about new wages for foreign sheep herders. We used to run 14,000 head of sheep on the open range, and we can't do it anymore. Plus, stories on health care, avalanches, and former Senator Olympia Snow. It's all coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. A bill to allow individuals with concealed carry permits to carry guns on the University of Wyoming campus and community colleges was defeated this week by the state Senate. Those in support of the legislation say it would have made campuses safer, while those opposed to it worried about potential dangers. In this piece reported by Maggie Mullen, Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard revisits the pros and cons surrounding the bill. Gillette Representative Scott Clem says the campus carry bill is about arming the good guys. When you have a gun-free zone, what that signals to society is that law-abiding citizens are going to obey the law. But it has no effect whatsoever on a madman who's going to come and who's going to uh, be bent on hurting people. A sign isn't going to stop a madman, a gun-free zone sign. And in fact, what you end up doing is you end up disarming innocent people who could otherwise defend themselves. Clem was one of many who supported the bill for one simple fact. They believed that it would make campuses across the state safe. The other piece is that many gun owners felt that the colleges were infringing on their Second Amendment rights. Cheyenne Senator Anthony Bouchard ran his campaign as a serious gun rights advocate and is serving his first term in the Wyoming legislature this session. He says they purposely required those who want to carry on campus get a concealed carry permit. That's due to the background checks and other requirements that permit holders must go through. Permit carriers are, are actually the, a more trusted segment of society than even law enforcement because the, the law-abiding citizens are tend to be law-abiding citizens, and that's why they signed up to get a permit and send their fingerprints in. One concern with the campus carry bill was the fact that guns would have been allowed at sporting events. The University of Wyoming's Board of Trustees recently approved the sale of beer and wine at football and basketball games, and the combination of guns and alcohol worried many. But Ranchester Representative Bo Biteman pointed out that the concern was overblown due to one simple fact. If you're drinking and have your concealed carry, you're breaking the law. In other words, it's illegal for someone carrying a concealed weapon to consume alcohol. The other worry involved suicide. University of Wyoming psychology professor Carolyn Pepper says for young people, the Wyoming suicide rate is twice the national average. This is the age when um, we see the onset of serious mental illness, particularly depression, my area of specialty. In 2014, a study by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention ranked Wyoming fourth on a list of states with the highest overall gun death rates. Pepper says if guns can be kept away from students, it could reduce the suicide risk on Wyoming's campuses. Wyoming Gun Owners Association's Michelle Sabrowski says she sees the issue differently. Maybe we should be looking into why kids on the University of Wyoming campus are so sad that they want to end their lives instead of trying to disarm them. Sabrowski has a daughter that takes classes at Casper College. She says allowing guns on campuses would address another serious issue. We have girls that are victimized on college campuses across this country and in this state every day. And we have disarmed those girls and told them that they cannot protect themselves. Wyoming Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assaults' Tara Muir says sexual assaults on campus should not be used as a reason to arm students. 
College women are typically assaulted by someone they know, usually a friend, a classmate, star of the football or basketball team. So even if they had access to their gun, they would rarely be tempted to use it. The other concern is that allowing guns in a classroom or around campus could inspire violence from a stressed-out student or someone else. But supporters of the legislation say that a number of campuses, including state schools in Colorado and Utah, allow campus carry and say there have been virtually no issues. Supporters of the legislation were disappointed by the Senate vote, but they plan to try again. In the meantime, two bills are still alive. House Bill 194 will allow K-12 school boards to designate which school district employees can carry a concealed weapon on school property, and House Bill 137 will allow individuals with concealed carry permits to bring a gun to government meetings. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Caroline Ballard. That story was reported and produced by Maggie Mullen. The American Constitution Society for Law and Policy is the nation's leading progressive legal organization. One of their scholars, Professor Bill Marshall from the University of North Carolina Law School, was in Laramie this week speaking at the University of Wyoming Law School, and we asked him to stop by and discuss Supreme Court nominee Judge Neil Gorsuch and why he has concerns about Gorsuch and his take on the Constitution. Professor Marshall begins by explaining how he sees things. I'm a part of the American Constitution Society, and I think we take a look at the Constitution as the way it was originally interpreted, actually, by Chief Justice John Marshall, who said that, and this is a quote, this is a Constitution we are expounding, and it's intended to endure, and let me paraphrase a bit, that means it has to apply in the current context. So, so for example, uh, if you read the Constitution clearly, it authorizes an army and a navy, it doesn't authorize an air force. An air force would be technically unconstitutional under originalist, textualist view of the Constitution. But the way that I read the Constitution is is that the Constitution is meant to, to accommodate changes in context. And if we need an air force, which we do, the Constitution should be read to allow that. Mm-hmm. So as you've looked at maybe some of his rulings, you know, look at his stance, I mean, what, what have you been able to glean? Well, let me say, I mean, from everything I understand about Judge Gorsuch, he's, he's, he's an immensely uh, likable person. He's certainly skilled in the law. Uh, I believe that the philosophy that he's espousing, however, uh, is, is this theory of originalism is one that really doesn't hold as much water as its advocates claim. Uh, judges, Judge Gorsuch, no doubt, has a brilliant legal mind. Uh, my biggest objection to his being confirmed to the United States Supreme Court is that the slot actually belongs to Merrick Garland. Yeah. And what's happened in our history is that we've seen this constant uh, escalation of one party going after another so they don't work with each other anymore. And the only way you get people on the Supreme Court is either if they have no record at all or if you're lucky enough to be able to control the Senate at the same time you win the presidency. I don't think the framers had in mind this kind of polarization. Mm-hmm. And what, what I, I understand that a lot of people might like tactically what Senator McConnell did in holding up the, the uh, Merrick Garland nomination, but I think it's bad for the country in the long run because it's going to lead to retaliation. And by the way, if the Democrats had done the same thing, I would have been out there criticizing. As you look at Judge Gorsuch, I- what would you expect from him? A lot of people have compared him to Justice Scalia. Do you, is that sort of what you're looking for? I, I think that's what we're going to see. I think he will. I think he will try to apply an originalist kind of mode, relying very heavily on text and history. And by the way, history and text are of course relevant to constitutional interpretation. They're just not everything. You have to take a look at the context that you're in. Um, where I'm concerned is that he might not take the context that we're in as seriously as, 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 uh, as I think Chief Justice John Marshall would have asked him to had Chief Justice John Marshall been around today. Is there a case or two that, that particularly concerns you? Uh, well, last year there were a few cases that went to four to four, uh, one of them being, for example, the question of whether or not mandatory union dues violated the First Amendment. And this was not mandatory union dues to be used for political activity by the unions. This was union dues to be used to help them engage in collective bargaining. Uh, Justice Scalia probably would have voted to 
to strike down mandatory union views. I think Judge Gorsuch will probably join that if uh, and, uh, if he gets to the Supreme Court, which I think is is very likely. And I think that really minimizes that overstates what the First Amendment is. I don't think it's particularly originalist. Mm-hmm. I don't think the originalists, uh, the framers, would have ever found this to be problematic. And I think it seriously undercuts the viability of the labor movement. Justice Roberts has surprised people, though, with some of his rulings. Any chance you might see Judge Gorsuch surprise him? Yeah, sure. There's always a possibility that, that any judge any judge will surprise you. Judge, just, Chief Justice Roberts is really an institutionalist more than he is an originalist. Mm-hmm. Um, the only real originalist left on the court right now is Justice Thomas. And, and when I say an institutionalist, uh, Chief Justice Roberts is concerned about matters of separation of powers and keeping uh, the ability for the Congress to check the president or the courts to be able to rule the way they do. So yes, I do think that you know we, we might see Judge Gorsuch joining Ju- uh, Chief Justice Roberts on on issues of executive power, for example, because I do think that from what I read from Judge Gorsuch, he's also a strong institutionalist. Professor William Marshall is, Bill Marshall is how he likes to be called, is uh, from the University of North Carolina Law School and is here visiting a number of University of Wyoming students talking about some of these issues. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Bob. Coming up, Wyoming's congressional delegation weighs in on repeal and replacing the Affordable Care Act and a discussion with former Senator Olympia Snow. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. The Republican Party hates so-called Obamacare. But when it comes to replacing the bill, the party is divided over how to change the health care system. Matt Laszlo reports from Washington. You've heard about the angry protests at Republican town halls across the nation. But you may not know there's also a heated debate happening inside closed-door Republican meetings on Capitol Hill. The 30-or-so member House Freedom Caucus voted as a block to fully repeal the Affordable Care Act before the party even has a replacement in hand. But here's Wyoming Senator John Barrasso. We need to repeal and then repair the damage. Did you hear that change in messaging? Remember when the GOP swept into power in 2010 on the message of repeal and replace? Listen to Barrasso again. We need to repeal and then repair the damage that's been done by this, provide relief. While that repeal and repair is angering conservative lawmakers, more moderate Republicans are warning the party of a potential backlash if they quickly rip health insurance away from millions of people. The fear is that backlash could cost some Republicans their seats. New Jersey Republican Congressman Tom MacArthur even voted against the budget Republicans passed that set the ball rolling for repealing the health law. With a Republican Congress and a Republican White House, we're not, uh, we're not passing messaging bills here. We are shooting live rounds. New Jersey has a Republican governor, but it expanded Medicaid under Obamacare. Republicans there and elsewhere worry about what to do with those millions of people who now have health insurance for the first time. That's why MacArthur says his party needs a replacement in hand soon. And because uh, uh, before we repeal, we need to know what the replacement's going to look like. And so I I cannot support that uh, drive to repeal and then hope uh, things work out. A a hope-so-maybe-so replacement is no replacement at all. But Republicans in rural red states, like Wyoming, don't want to have to pay for the Medicaid expansion in other states. Congresswoman Liz Cheney says she's watching the issue closely. Now, in particular, Wyoming has got a number of, you know, really important issues and and concerns because we're a rural state, because we're a small state um, population-wise, because we did not expand Medicaid. And so it's going to be a real priority for me to make sure that, you know, we have a good solution so that the states that didn't expand Medicaid uh, aren't in a position where we're hurt by that. Cheney also says the party can't take insurance away from people without giving them a way to access coverage. I think it's going to be really important to make sure that people have, you know, people don't lose their coverage, the things we've talked about before, um, that we're not in a position where we're pulling the rug out from under folks. Cheney says allowing people to get insurance across state lines could help drive down costs and provide people cheaper options than existed before Obamacare passed. You know, in the past when we've tried to allow that in Wyoming at a state level, um, it's been very difficult because 
our healthcare costs are so high and because our population is so small. But hopefully if we have a situation where um, you've got those restrictions lifted nationwide, uh, people really will be able to begin to have more choice. As the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, Wyoming Senior Senator Mike Enzi is working with party leaders to craft a viable replacement option. In the past, Enzi has said he wants to replace Obamacare, but he wants Congress to take its time. He says he's hearing concerns from Republicans across the political spectrum, but he says the party isn't as divided as Democrats are trying to portray them as. Oh no, I've known that this is a very difficult task with a lot of different opinions, One, at least one for every senator. Right. So I'm just trying to coordinate it. Enzi is confident his party can pass a replacement bill and send it to President Trump for his signature. Of course we'll get it. We and they'll like it. As for the details of that bill and the timeline, there doesn't seem to be any consensus in the GOP as of yet. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. In today's political climate, it can be difficult to even talk to a neighbor or a friend about contentious issues not to mention trying to work across the aisle within Congress. Former Maine Republican Senator Olympia Snow has built a career on bipartisanship and now serves on the board of directors for the Bipartisan Policy Center. On Monday, she'll be speaking at the Leap into Leadership Conference in Cheyenne. As part of our series on civil discourse, she joins me now to talk a little about building bridges. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, I'm delighted. Thank you for having me, Caroline. So you've been in politics for over 40 years, and throughout your career, you've been a champion of bipartisanship. Where did that come from? You know, it's interesting. I, As I think back on it uh, in, in my own life, and I talk about, and I will in my speech on, on Monday night, about my early childhood experiences, I think that lends itself to, you know, building relationships around me. And uh, that certainly carried through when ultimately uh, I began my service in the, in the main state legislature and understood uh, the value of working together and building templates. And, you know, I had those experiences early on in my legislative career, understanding how you could work with the other side to get things done. Even though you might disagree on, on some of the issues, you would always find a pathway forward. So, you know, it sort of evolved both personally as well as professionally because I thought it was so important ultimately to, to solve problems for the people we were elected to represent. Can you tell me a little bit about your decision to leave the Senate in February 2012 and not seek another term? Yes, you know, and it was a difficult decision. And actually, it was one that sort of just ended up um, descending on me as I was preparing to, you know, gather my signatures for submission for my election. I had been preparing for two years to run. But it occurred to me as I started to project out over the next six years what it would be like realizing that the polarization and the partisanship would not be diminished in the short term. And once I came to that conclusion, you know, I decided that I would take, you know, my fight for bipartisanship in a different direction and outside of the institution. Was there a moment that you can remember where you found yourself thinking, this isn't what I signed up for or this isn't working anymore? What shocked me early on, I think it was uh, the debt crisis in 2011. I was struck about the fact that here we had all these months to resolve that question. And it wasn't until literally the final seconds, uh, the final hour, until the, uh, the deadline where we managed to develop a solution and, and enact a solution to the problem. That, to me, really underscored the degree to which the political process had really sort of disintegrated that we were willing to take the country to the political and to, more importantly, the financial edge that, you know, not only sent a shockwave around the country, but around the world. As someone with such a long history in, in public service, what happened? You know, why do you think politics have hit such a moment of, of stalemate and contentiousness? You know, it's a good question and uh, one that I get frequently asked because it is an enormous source of frustration and has been building up over time. 
And ultimately, I really attribute to sort of the breakdown in political discourse and producing solutions and abandoning compromise and consensus to the divide that was created, you know, both political parties, you know, are responsible, but, you know, focusing on more of the narrow political basis of the, of the political parties and also what was happening internally in Congress where ultimately we were no longer solving problems. And so, you know, as people were experiencing the hardships in their own lives, I would hear that from my own constituents, uh, you know, knowing that the economy wasn't working for them. So people, you know, began to experience all of this hardship in their own lives, and yet there was this disconnect in Washington where we weren't solving the problems. And so there became this wider and wider chasm and disconnect between those who were governed and those who were governing. And I think that that, you know, that disaffection built up over time and manifested itself, obviously, in in this last election, but it had been cumulative over time. It's not just politicians who are having to deal with these issues anymore. It seems that social media feeds on Facebook, you're seeing people talk about contentious issues like race, gender equality, religion, economics, and immigration. Are there ways that people can better talk to someone that they disagree with? I would hope so. You know, it's um, it's unfortunate today the degree to which you know the discourse has sort of emerged into you know harsh, loud language. We have to better understand one another, show more tolerance for differing viewpoints. Trying to put ourselves in the shoes of someone else to understand, have that empathy, and also to try and understand why somebody thinks the way they do, rather than the shouting and the arguing. And sometimes that just is, you know, much more part of the theatrics than it is about really contributing to trying to better understand one another. I always say that it isn't surprising that we all have differences, you know, that we can have a variety of viewpoints on you know, a range of issues, as you mentioned. The question is, is trying to appreciate those differences and respecting them, despite the fact you might disagree. And that's what I loved about the women's, uh, the Wyoming's Women's Legislative Caucus's workshops and talking about, you know, managing to disagree without being disagreeable. You know, I often said, you know, many of the programs, you know, that uh, offer one side or the other on an issue, and they never show the gray area. You know, they they just want to position people either for or against. But ultimately, there is that gray area. And uh, if you're solving a problem in the legislative process, for example, in the Congress or in state legislature, you've got to sort through the issues to reach a conclusion. And it's not always so clear. It's not always a straight path. You're not always going to get what you want. And I think that the same is true in just, you know, having debates about a variety of issues. Where do you see good examples of civil discourse? Are you seeing any signs that that things can improve? I do. I mean, I think people are anxious to have that civil discourse. That's why I like what the caucus is doing in Wyoming. I mean, to have the, the whole idea of having these workshops, talking about civility. I think in various spheres, they're trying to set examples. And I think even, in, you know, in social media and, you know, on the networks, cable news shows, it's so important to, to also show examples of how people can disagree, but ultimately reach a solution. Because at the end of the day, we all know we have our differences. I don't think that should be a surprise. And you know, whether Republicans and Democrats have differences, obviously, that's why we are who we are, respectively. But the question is, whether you can overcome those differences and that there's a willingness, you know, to overcome those differences. I always said there was never a golden era of bipartisanship in the United States Congress, but there was a time that we had the capacity to overcome our differences. But today, it's almost as if, you know, if either side doesn't prevail, they just take it to the next election. But that doesn't solve the problem at hand for the people in this country of the people you're trying or were elected to serve. Former Maine Senator Olympia Snow will be speaking at the Leap into Leadership Conference in Cheyenne. Senator, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Caroline. I'm looking forward to it. And this is my first uh, trip to the state of Wyoming, so it's a double pleasure. 
When we come back, we'll talk about climate change in the classroom and a conservative alternative to the carbon tax. This is Open Spaces. are listening to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. A group of conservative thinkers who are concerned about climate change are proposing an approach that they hope will help encourage companies to look to reduce carbon pollution. It's a market-based solution called a climate fee and dividend. It charges a fee on industry for the amount of carbon burned and gives a dividend to consumers to help them pay for rising energy costs which means the fee would eventually get returned to the companies. The plan is to move money around to reduce emissions and not hurt the economy. The Citizens Climate Lobby is pushing the proposal. A number of chapters are being developed in Wyoming, and Wesley Frame is from the Cheyenne chapter. He says it should be revenue neutral. We actually ran it through uh, Regional Economics Modeling Incorporated, um, and they found that about two-thirds of Americans would... Uh, break even or have more disposable income from the dividend um, with one-third paying more for their energy costs. Um, and then with the fee, we would charge to uh, raise the fee $10 per CO2 every year at a set date so the producers know when and the stockholders know when the price of the fee would go up. Mm -hmm. So uh, what is this going to encourage the energy companies to do? Um, Well, you know, obviously, if they want to stay in the energy business, encourage them to invest in more renewable energies or low carbon energies. Um, And then on the citizen side, because people say it's just going to be a wash, well, it will encourage the average citizen to be more efficient with their energy use, because if you get to keep more of that money to spend elsewhere, why not try and do that? This is a, what, as you said at the very start, a conservative approach. This is supported by a lot of conservative people, starting with the former Secretary of State, James Baker. You've got mm-hmm. a, a number of other people. Are you saying that there's a number of Republicans and conservative uh, thinking people out there that are concerned about climate change, and but just haven't liked what other solutions are out there? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, and then everyone always gets bogged down in the science. Is it going to you know, take away my job or is it going to put us in a recession? If we do nothing, Wyoming is set to be in a really bad place. But if we instituted the carbon fee, we would be a little better off. We'd be worse off than the other states, but we'd be better off initially. And if Wyoming took a proactive approach, the state itself, and started you know, trying to attract wind and solar and geothermal plants, we could definitely get ahead of what's happening. Do, do you think, I mean, one of the arguments I've, that I've read mm-hmm. for this approach is that it would create actually as many, if not more jobs than we see in the state right now, and, and it wouldn't cost us some energy jobs. You know, as you've looked at this, I mean, could you make that case yourself? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, cause back about two years ago when I looked at how many actual coal jobs there was in Wyoming, it was only 8,000. Now it makes up 40% of our economy, but it's only 8,000 jobs. And there used to be more, but majority of those jobs were lost by automation. But with, um, let's say wind turbine technician and solar installers or solar technicians, I think if I remember correctly, there is three of those jobs for every one coal job created. Now, they don't pay as high as the coal miners, but if you put in effect the boom-bust cycle, then it definitely evens out. It, how could you ever make this a win-win for everyone? It's hard. Um, in order to make it a win-win for everyone, we have to, at the state level, which we, if we're going to do it, we should do it soon before we run out, run out of money. But you know, something like uh, at the state level, open up a retraining fund for coal miners so they can retrain in another industry because, you know, we got the windmill maintenance jobs and we have the um, solar maintenance and solar installer jobs. But with those also comes welding jobs, uh, electrician jobs, Mm -hmm. you know, 
I wanted to ask you one more thing about this plan. So you see this as a Wyoming could just do this. This wouldn't be something the country would have to do or a bunch of states would have to do? No, Wyoming, uh, Wyoming could just do this. Um, they had a similar, it was a little different, but a similar proposal in Washington. But the plan wasn't exactly what the um, super left environmentalists wanted, so they didn't push for it. And for some reason, you know, the term climate just seems to be liberal bias. So the conservatives don't want to push it. Wesley, how can people get more information? I know there's a website out there and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, uh, you can get more information at uh, citizensclimatelobby.org. Uh, they have all kinds of stuff. They'll have the uh, REM report, and we have a working paper uh, about the household impact. Okay. Well, Wesley, this is an interesting idea. Uh, hopefully we'll get some people interested in one of the chapters across the state. I know they're growing all the time. And thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. Wesley Frain is with the Cheyenne Chapter of the Citizens Climate Lobby. This school year, for the first time, Wyoming kids are learning about climate change using science standards adopted by the State Board of Education. But as Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports, it's been a bumpy ride to get those standards passed. In 2014, Wyoming's science standards hadn't been updated in 10 years, and it was time to adopt new ones. Like most other states, Wyoming was poised to pass the Next Generation Science Standards. Laramie Senator Chris Rothfuss was a big fan of Next Generation, but he remembers a lot of grumbling from his fellow lawmakers. There's generally been a concern with standards that somehow these are national standards that the feds are trying to tell us what to learn, and so there was a, a general backlash, I think, towards that. Rothfuss says they were worried that they would require teachers to teach that climate change is human-caused, a controversial concept in an energy state whose economy depends on fossil fuels. Rothfuss recalls one busy week at legislature, not many lawmakers noticed when a footnote was added to the state budget bill. It was small, but it packed a wallop. People are tired uh, at the end of the day. Sometimes things slip through the cracks, and that may have been one of those pieces of legislation that if the House had really had a lot of robust debate, might not have passed, but there wasn't any debate, and it passed. The footnote defunded the next generation science standards. Here's former Goshen County Representative Matt Teeters, one of the sponsors of the footnote, speaking soon after. I think obviously our students need to learn about climate change, but I, I felt like it was overemphasized. Almost activism within the curriculum. Rothfuss says the decision created a standoff between the State Board of Education and the legislature. The State Board basically said, all right, well, if you're taking the best standards we know of off the table, we're done even talking about standards. And so Rothfuss and the late Senator John Patton, as well as the Joint Appropriations Committee, all drafted new bills that repealed the original footnote. After the footnote was removed, Jillian Balow was elected superintendent of public instruction, having given her word to slow down the process of adopting science standards. Her approach was to go out and get input from Wyomingites. Our staff worked incredibly hard going around the state, holding listening sessions, collecting input, and took over 100 comments to the review committee before the work even started. What Balow heard from those comments was that people wanted to mold those next generation standards into something uniquely Wyoming. We have a science classroom in our own backyard. They wanted to come to a consensus about how to teach climate change, too. One of my goals was to make sure that we had great science standards that encouraged students to use the scientific process to, to determine and to deduce factual science. In other words, let kids use science to make up their own minds about the causes of climate change. University of Wyoming geologist Sarah Conrad sat on Balo's Science Standards Task Force and met monthly with parents, teachers, and other community members to hammer out these Wyoming-made standards. She said the conversation was often tense. Because there's certain words that get people fired up, and we tried to avoid the words that could be controversial. And in, in changing the words, it wasn't that we we changed the science. Again, we didn't want to do that. We wanted to make sure we're really sticking to rigorous uh, science standards. As a glacier expert, solid science was important to Conrad. She takes issue with people who say they do or don't believe in climate change. I mean, what science is, is, is a process, and it's a system, and it's a method. It's not a belief. 
Conrad is very worried about how quickly global warming is dwindling Wyoming's glaciers. But she says the goal of the task force was to find a way to express accurate science so everyone could agree. Nowhere in Wyoming's science standards does it say humans cause climate change, even though a NASA survey shows 97 percent of scientists agree they do. But Conrad gives an example of how the task force finally did agree to describe the effects of greenhouse gases. They flipped the language, so instead of saying that an increase of the gases causes warming... So we changed the example to say a decrease in greenhouse gases causes a decrease in global temperatures, which would cause an increase in glacial ice, which is exactly true, and that's what happens to start an ice age. For one, Laramie science teacher Andy Pannell is glad the science standards took a soft touch. I'm a fifth-generation Wyomingite. I understand where my paycheck comes from. And I I was a little nervous that I was going to be teaching climate change, that I was going to be set against, you know, the culture here in Wyoming. And anyway, letting kids make up their own minds came naturally to him. I challenged them, don't believe me. Don't believe Mr. Panel. Let's examine the evidence and then we'll make some determinations for ourselves. Now that he's taught nearly a full year of climate change curriculum, Panel says the lawmakers who drafted that original footnote had nothing to worry about. If the legislators were worried that the energy industry would be demonized by trying to study climate change, I think that actually the opposite has happened. I think a lot of the kids actually have more of an appreciation that there's just trade-offs for the way that we do business. Coming up next on the show, we'll hear a story by Andy Panel's middle schoolers in which kid reporters investigate Wyoming's role in climate change and then report back on what they discover. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. Now that Wyoming science standards are encouraging kids to make up their own minds about climate change, a group of Laramie middle schoolers tackled the issue of the environmental impacts of energy development in Wyoming. We handed off the microphone to young reporters Zarin Homer and Sam Alexander. I'm Zarin. To understand how energy works, we built some wooden cars and put tiny solar panels on them to power their gears. And I'm Sam. Then we tried racing them. Here's our friend Zane. One of the solar cars looks like it's having trouble. One of the engines isn't working. Oh, Anna's started going again. We built these solar cars because we're learning about all different kinds of energy. Coal, wind, solar, and coal bed methane. Our teacher, Mr. Panel, told us Wyoming produces all those kinds of energy, and he asked us this question. How does the state of Wyoming connect into the climate change thing? Like, why is Wyoming even relevant in the climate change discussion? So we started talking about the answer. There's a rally going on outside our school on the campus of the University of Wyoming that had to do with fossil fuels. Water is life! So we went to it and met a northern Arapaho activist from Wyoming named Micah Lott, who's been protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline. Lott says, if that pipeline breaks, it could ruin Wyoming's rivers too. Water is precious, and we're nothing without water. We all need water to live. Can we all agree on that? Yeah. If you said today that your water was gross, you know, you turned on the faucet and it started coming out yellow and black, wouldn't you want to do something about it? Yeah. Well, why don't we do something about it before it happens than when it already happened? After the rally, we thought, screw oil, screw fossil fuels. It's ruining our water and our air. Well, then we interviewed John Pope. He owns WellDoc, an energy service company. Pope agrees that bad technology like broken pipelines hurts the environment. And that's why his company is working to invent better technology. Pope says this is really important because nations with more access to energy have less war, less abuse, and less slavery. Places that have more energy do those things in a more enlightened way, no doubt about it. So that makes you want to create energy availability, right? The problem you have is energy availability also creates environmental destruction, right? So you have... You have these two things that are, that are in conflict. So after talking with Pope, we interviewed a lot of experts and did other research, and we started to realize that Wyoming's energy economy, it's a little bit sweet, a little bit sour. It's kind of like those solar cars we built. 
It's cool that they run on sunlight that doesn't hurt the environment, but they don't work that well. We came up with lots of ideas on how to make the cars better and how to turn them into real cars. Here's one by our friend Tommy. I, I think that maybe it would be cool to like put solar panels on like the top of your garage and then like get it make like a generator in your garage and then like plug it into your car. And so then like mm -hmm. you can just make your own energy and have an electric car. So two bonuses. But what if you don't have sun that day? Yeah, and you, and you can't drive it now. Yeah. 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 But as you can hear, there's a lot of disagreement. We didn't agree on Wyoming's priorities either. Here's Eden. You don't need to have money. You should make it the number one priority to be helping the planet, not getting money, which is actually counterproductive. We're able to go to school right now because of the money that our economy is making. And we need money to help the environment. Coal is going to go away someday. It is not a renewable resource. And we have to learn to, like, the Wyoming government has to learn to cope with that, and they need to find alternate sources of energy, like solar power and wind energy. That was Ann and Rowan. But here's something we did agree on, that Wyoming kids benefit greatly from all the money that comes from the energy industry, like the brand new $80 million Laramie High School that coal bonuses help pay for. In a couple years, we'll be driving our own cars to that school. So yes, our herd is proud of where we come from and who we are. It's just that as we start getting a taste of our future, we can't tell if it's sweet or sour. In Laramie, Wyoming, I'm Zarin Homer. And I'm Sam Alexander. When we come back, we'll revisit the issue of wages for sheep herders, and this is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Back. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Wyoming's sheep industry relies on foreign labor from the Department of Labor's H-2A visa program, which applies to agricultural jobs. When that agency raised wage requirements for sheep herders in 2015, ranchers complained that the rule change could put them out of business. But workers' advocates argued that the new regulations were not enough. Wyoming Public Radio's Alana Elder met with a rancher and a shepherd near Kemmer just after the latest round of raises went into effect. Rancher Bill Talliver drove me to a one-room house raised on blocks. A pair of voices and two pairs of boots led out from underneath it. Talliver's son-in-law and 44-year-old herder Lorenzo Salazar had been trying to fix a plumbing problem. Salazar tells me it's been cold lately and that his pipes froze that morning. Because of all the snow that's fallen, he hasn't had much to do with herding sheep. Salazar has worked for the Talivers on and off for 14 years. And even with the cold and the solitude, he says he likes the work. He sends most of his paycheck home to his wife and four children who are all in school. Since last year's raise, he's had an easier time meeting the family's expenses. Talliver plans on hiring two more shepherds in the spring, but he worries that he and other ranchers will have trouble covering their costs if lamb prices don't go up. Wyoming sheep producers earn some income from wool production, but they mostly depend on selling lambs to feedlots or slaughterhouses. Prices for both of those commodities have been slumping for a long time, and people have been shrinking their herds. We used to run 14,000 head of sheep on the open range, and we can't do it anymore. The family is scaling back and looking for new ways to make money. Talliver plans to keep using the H-2A program, but he sees the new regulations as part of a shift that's coming in the industry, driving ranchers to switch to on-farm flocks of a couple hundred sheep, which they can raise without herders. But then you have to have wheat or corn or something else to sell because the lambs from 200 aren't going to keep a family alive for a year. The industry is just going to change, and if you can't make money doing something, maybe you go to recreation, or if you have to, you, you sell a ranch. It seems counterintuitive to sort of subsidize the ranches that are not as efficient and therefore believe themselves to be unable to pay their workers a reasonable wage. 
That's Nina DeSalvo, a lawyer with the Denver-based firm Towards Justice. She says that since domestic shepherds in states like Maine and North Dakota have earned between $10 and $12 an hour, Western ranchers should be paying more. DeSalvo's representing shepherds in four separate lawsuits, including a case against the DOL over the recent rule changes. The H-2A program has a separate set of regulations for range jobs because herders can spend months without access to running water or electricity. And ranchers say that since shepherds are on call for 24 hours a day while looking after sheep, it's just not feasible to pay them an hourly wage. So this most recent set of special procedures for sheep, goat, and livestock herding set shepherd salaries at minimum wage for a 48-hour work week. DeSalvo says the DOL is out of line because that's much less than the workers she represents actually work. Towards Justice is also suing the Department of Homeland Security, which issues the visas. Herders are allowed to stay in the U.S. for three years before they have to reapply, and that's longer than the standard for most H-2A workers. They purport to create an H-2A visa for shepherds that is meant to bring foreign labor into this country to meet a permanent labor shortage, whereas the H-2A program itself was created to address temporary or seasonal labor shortages. DeSalvo says that distinction matters because herders would benefit from permanent visas available through other programs. They would be able to bring their families, they would be able to establish their lives, and not always be in sort of a strange, fluctuating, transient visa status. The way she sees it, the permanent labor shortage exists because wages have been so low for so long. Last year's raise was the first shepherds had seen in nearly two decades, and DeSalvo says that stagnation has scared Americans out of herding jobs. There just aren't any. There aren't any more. <laughs> because they make, like, between 2 and $4 an hour. Rancher Tolliver agrees that there aren't Americans applying to be shepherds, but instead of wages, he blames the tough conditions of the job and a changing culture. It's tough to find young Mexicans who want to come over. I mean, they like to go to the movies, and they want to be in town on Saturday night. And just like my grandkids, hell, they don't want to be out there stuck in a sheep wagon. But I guess they don't need the work. Shepard Salazar says he does need the work. In the spring, he'll head out onto the range, and he won't be back for seven months. He tells me he first learned to herd sheep near El Paso, Texas, and after so much time working for the Talivers, he knows everything about this job. For now, ranchers will have to pay more for that expertise. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Alana Elder. A winter storm this week brought even more snow to the Tetons, and the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort closed Tuesday because of high winds and avalanche danger. But those spiny peaks are not the only place in Wyoming where snow must be approached with caution. Every year, Wyoming sees multiple fatalities from avalanches. All you need is the wrong combination of terrain, snow, and weather, and there could be a problem. Wyoming Public Radio's education reporter, Tennessee Watson, dropped in on a class studying how to stay safe in avalanche country. I walk into my avalanche course, and while everyone is getting situated, there are mesmerizing clips of video playing. Skiers dropping out of helicopters, bluebird days with powder billowing off jagged peaks, and massive slabs of cascading snow careening down high open slopes. But that's not terrain I'm likely to ski anytime soon, so I start wondering why I'm even in this class. Um, it makes great and exciting video, but the fact is a small slope that avalanches and can cover us is something that we probably travel through and um, may not notice it as being, well, you know, this is nothing like the video. It's not this high, steep slope. That's my avalanche course instructor, Jerry Hammond. The 20 students gather in a classroom at the University of Wyoming. We're a mix of college students, search and rescue volunteers, mountaineers, snowboarders, and skiers. And we're all here because we love the backcountry. Hammond says he showed us those videos to call out our assumptions about where avalanches occur. But it is that we're traveling in a terrain where, in fact, there's enough snow to slide down on top of us. So we should be aware of um, those subtle terrain issues. Hammond has been a ski patroller for the last 20 years in the snowy range outside Laramie. While he's seen accidents in above tree-lined snowfields, He's also responded to calls in gullies below the tree line, too. He tells us that avalanche danger 
can also lurk at the local sledding hill. They're all sad stories associated with humans interacting poorly with avalanches, but this happened to be um, a youth group from one of the local churches, and they were up in the Centennial area just having a, a wonderful weekend day, and they were intertubing and sliding off of a short hill In the midst of doing this, they were on a snowpack that had the ability to break large blocks. So there was actually a young man who died. He was 14 years old, and he was buried by enough snow. And both the trauma of being buried and the asphyxiation that came with being underneath this heavy snowpack, um, he didn't survive. That seemingly benign hill had the basic ingredients for an accident. Unstable snowpack, a steep enough slope, and a trigger. In this case, a human who set off an avalanche. There's a lot of geeky science that explains why snow doesn't hold, but Hammond says the human factor is what really makes a difference. So part of this course involves getting out in the woods so we can see our impact on the snow, and also so we can practice getting victims out of it. The beeping you hear is avalanche beacons. These small devices send and receive signals that, combined with an avalanche probe and a shovel, is what you use to find someone. There it is. We run time drills, searching for beacons buried in the snow. Jeez. What's the time? Time! <laughs> we also dig snow pits and learn to look for the weak layers lurking below the surface that make the top layers likely to break loose. And our new knowledge of snow and our command of the technology might make us feel safe, but Hammond says it shouldn't, because... They're no match for the human ego. So course curriculum has started to emphasize social science right alongside snow science. But what we found, people will take themselves into places that are easily identifiable as avalanche prone. And in fact, be at the level where a forecaster will say, an avalanche is very likely here, you shouldn't go. And that's where peer pressure comes in. Groups of people will coerce one another very subtly into leading to the stoke of the day. We're going to go. The snow's going to be beautiful. This is going to be wonderful. The odds of us getting into an avalanche are slim. It's, it's not going to be a problem. And instead of making the good decision, that social group pushes themselves into a situation they shouldn't be in. It's not that you can't get out when there's a risk of avalanche. You just need to choose your terrain wisely. To do so, Hammond recommends taking a class or accessing the plethora of resources online. He says the Colorado Avalanche Information Center is a good place to start. Nobody wants to be the party pooper to say, I don't think we should go because the avalanche danger is high. Everyone else is stoked to say, the snow's great. Wow. Excellent conditions. Let's go. Let's go have fun. But what ends up happening is an avalanche. So when you're headed out, Hammond says, check the weather, check avalanche forecasts, check to make sure you have your beacon, shovel, and probe. But what might keep you safest is if you leave your ego at home. Or don't go at all. And know that another good day will come. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Tennessee Watson. To see a list of resources recommended by Jerry Hammond, go to wyomingpublicmedia.org. Thank you for listening to this edition of Open Spaces. If you missed any part of the program or want to hear this or past shows, jump on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org and click on Open Spaces. You can also sign up for our podcast via that website or iTunes. Anna Rader is our web editor. Remember, we always like to hear your comments or good ideas for future shows. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.